Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynical Podcast coming to you today from the Fordham Law School in Manhattan. How is everyone doing tonight? Yeah. All right. That's what I am talking about. The Cynical Podcast is, of course, produced in proud partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our excellent newsletter, our app, or, of course, straight from the old tap at the website SupChina.com. We offer uncensored reporting and commentary on everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from the latest on the Belt and Road Initiative to Beijing's ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We are sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and joining me on this Valentine's Day, this day of passion and romance, is my alarmingly hirsute date for the evening. Uh, he did not have that beard, I assure you, when I swiped right on his picture in, in Tinder. I swear to God. Anyway, his well, name. That's what my wife said, too. Right, <laughs> Jeremy Goldcorn, or that's what he says. I, I, I looked him up. He's actually known, better known as El Maiz Dorado, um, which I believe was his name when he was a professional Mexican wrestler. Uh, anyway, the one and only Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. Give it up. <laughs> All I people. can say is thank you, Kaiser. All right. <laughs> You're not going to criticize the corniness of my interview. <laughs> Stop now. Uh, okay. I've got more. I got, I mean, I, I'm Stop. at the inexhaustible supply of ridiculous introductions for Jeremy. We are joined this evening by one of my favorite people who's writing on China, Jianying Zha. Uh, Zha Jianying uh, writes with great sensitivity, both personal and, and political sensitivity, about contemporary China and makes it come alive in all its maddening complexity uh, for the readership of The New Yorker, where I think some of the best writing she's done has appeared. She's the author of some fantastically good books, including China Pop and The Tide Players, which I highly recommend. Jianying, welcome back to Seneca. Thank you. It's about time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Welcome, Jianying, uh, <laughs> and uh, welcome back, uh, because those of you who've listened to us uh, for a long time may recall we did a show uh, with Jianying in 2011 in capital M in Beijing, and it was called The Soul of Beijing. Yeah. Good show. Go, go back and listen to it. Uh, it actually... Holds up sort of surprisingly well. I, I listened to it again recently. I, I'm pleased to report, though, that we have gotten much better at actually doing live recordings that sound decent. So I promise you when you go back and listen to this show, it'll sound a lot better than that one did. But anyway, do, do go back and listen to that one. It's a really good show. So let's get into it. We promised you a show about dealing with troublemakers. Uh, <laughs> Jane, your December piece from The New Yorker talks about some of the very, uh, shall we say, interesting ways that the Chinese authorities deal with critics. One such critic is, of course, your own brother, Jia Jianguo. And one of the ways that the authorities have dealt with him is something called Bei Liu to be 
touristed or to be vacationed. Can you explain what that means, why it's done, and what is involved? Get your tones right. It's Beiluyo. Beiluyo. Well, it's one of the uh, Bei on a long, a growing list of the Bay phenomena. Basically, what it, it's a, a new kind of uh, invention on the Chinese internet to describe this uh, odd phenomenon of someone who is framed by usually a law enforcement, a police or official to be seemingly doing something in order to uh, crack down on this person or round him up. For example, the Bay list, there's something called Bei Hexie is the, the, the most common, widespread, to be harmonized. So Bei, right, Bei is, is, is a passive indicator, right? It's a it passive indicator. Like, yeah. To be the object of some verb. So right. to be, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, sorry, I should no, no, explain. Bei in Chinese means to be. It's a passive verb. To, to put that in front of uh, a whole bunch of uh, you know, um, nouns or, or to describe whatever activity that follows this bay is actually... Uh, that's done to you. It's something it's that's done, done to you. To, you so now. <laughs> to be touristed. And then exactly. There's another one like, uh, and to be taxivated. Oh, and right. How, what's that one in Chinese? Bei lo shui. Bei lo shui. It was like our... our Friends, Ai Weiwei, <laughs> and oh, your friends maybe Fan Bingbing. Oh, not my friend. I, I wish. <laughs> anyway, uh, all the, you know, there are lots of people. Uh, some uh, I can't say everyone. Who, there are, in fact, a lot of you know tax evasions in China. It's quite rampant. But some characters who were caught in like high-profile cases, like Fan Bingbing or Ai Weiwei, are widely perceived as you know being caught not for tax evasion per se, but for other activities. Usually, uh, for example, in the case of Ai Weiwei, for other dissident or critical uh, you know <laughs> speeches or that, right? Yeah, but in fact, the official will arrest this person on tax evasion. So this is this is like you said you know it's one of a number of them of these pretty darkly humorous bay constructions so we have like you said bay bay uh, bay luyo of course and and uh yeah. bay lo also some very dark ones like bay zi sha to be to, to be, be suicided sui. right yeah. uh which means some you know you you're sort of compelled to commit suicide uh or in cases where the suicide looks really quite suspicious like it wasn't actually a suicide but it's often applied. These yeah. a whole yeah. bunch of them have emerged in this era of stability maintenance. That's right. What's yeah. the significance of of this? Uh, why why have there been this interesting parade of of these bay constructions? Yeah, I think this is a very eerie kind of uh, uh, um, symptom of the police state moving, in fact, to we you might say a little more sophisticated way of uh, you know uh, uh, silencing or get rid of. Uh, those troublemakers in different uh, s- spheres, right? Some of them are actually uh, party officials. Others are critics like, um, say, the petitioners or uh, NGO activists or, you know, uh, uh, civil rights lawyers. But in the old era, say in the Maoist era or the early, you know, uh, reform era, some of them can be just completely rounded up or arrested in the name of, say, counter-revolutionary activities. So that's pretty straightforward, just 
basically you don't need an excuse that this person some somehow outly you know broke the law by evading tax, or maybe you know he had depression and just decide he decided to commit suicide. But in fact, it was something else. Something shady is happening here. But now. There's, the states seem to find it necessary to have a kind of um, excuse that looks like something normal happened. He took when a vacation. Highly, yeah, he yeah. took a vacation and he had depression, so he took his own life. Or, you know, in some weird, like, in fact, this particular New Yorker piece, I had to quarrel with the editor to insist this, um, the bailist, to insist this to be zhang, to bei piao chang. Yeah, because uh, the the editors actually worried that the American readers would not be able to process this. What does it mean to be zhang? You know, zhang mean, meaning the male. We need to explain that. Piao chang means to to, uh, to go out soliciting prostitutes, right? Yeah. So to be piao chang, what does that mean? It means like you're passively fr- you're framed as if you're you know you're you're soliciting you're you're, get, you're right. yeah you're soliciting you're, you're caught in the act. But in fact, the whole case might be framed. Like right. a, a prostitute may be enlisted to, you know, uh, seduce this guy who's being framed. For, for, there are actually some high-profile uh, cases of such. Xue um, Manzi is, uh, Manzi is one Manzi, of them. Yeah. This is one of the... the Charles uh, Xue, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, in his case, I don't. I mean, some of these are not. You yeah. can't. Ha- I don't have, know how, how much bay was. <laughs> yeah, was in that particular case. case. <laughs> yeah, but there are there other some cases. active verbiage going yeah. on there. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Beiyumila. And let's um, uh, before uh, let's change tack a little bit before we actually discuss your brother's wonderful holiday uh, with his minders. Let's talk a little bit about him and his history of political activism. How did it all start for him? He's yeah. your older brother, right? He's my older brother. Mm-hmm. He's actually my half brother from oh. my father's first marriage. So he's uh, old Red Guard, a kind of a cultural revolution radical that went to the countryside in the late sixties and and seventies. Spent actually twenty years there until he came back just on the eve of Tiananmen. So as a dissident or a troublemaker, in fact, he's a very late comer. <laughs> uh, so. I, only in the 90s, he began to hook up with some of these other dissidents in Beijing. Uh, one of them is Xu Wenli, who's a veteran uh, who already was jailed for many years and was released and was thinking about forming an opposition party. And they, along with dozens of others in different parts of China, began to agitate for this democracy party, Zhongguo uh, Right on the eve of actually Bill Clinton was visiting China. This gave them an unexpected short window of you know not being immediately cracked down. So they in fact actually went to register this party in different parts of China. But as soon as Clinton left, they were all rounded up. So you know most of the leaders were sentenced the charges of subversion of state for up to like a decade. Like my, my brother was sentenced to nine years and there were people who were sentenced to like 12, 13 years in jail. So the party basically was crushed within six months. But this was the beginning of my brother's career as a troublemaker. In fact, that was the title of my earlier New Yorker piece. But the editor 
you know, on publication, they give it a different title, Enemy of the State. Right. Well, the original was Troublemaker. Was uh, That was my own <laughs> you know, title. Yeah. So how would you describe your brother's worldview then? Uh, what, is, what is it that he believes? What is it that he wants? And how did he come into it? And I mean, if you had to break it down into constituent parts, how much of it would you assess to be sort of honest commitment to democratic values and institutions? How much of it is just sort of anti-authoritarianism, maybe an outgrowth of that same kind of anti-authoritarian impulse that led him to become a red guard? How much of it is just sort of an irrepressible gadfly instinct because he is quite an irrepressible yes, gadfly. He yes. just, he won't yeah. stop, right? Mm-hmm. Which is really, really interesting. And, you know, just sort of his plain old stubbornness. I mean, I feel like, let's put him on the couch for a second and, and tell me what what are the constituent parts of his psychoanalysis. Yeah. I, all of above. I mean, everything you just said earlier was part of the makeup of someone like my brother who's a complete diehard, you know, uh, rebel from very early on. I, I actually wrote in that early profile of him about how from childhood he was kind of, was already revealing this unruliness against the authoritarian teachers, say, in very elite high school in Beijing. That was even before the Cultural Revolution started. So, but then he's someone who kind of embraced a cause. He had to have a cause. Uh, he, he, so he, he basically became a radical Maoist in, in, in the sense that he answered Mao's call to go to the countryside, spread the revolution, be with the peasant, and Bar-Martin he would follow that <laughs> until he hit a hard wall, right? Wow. Uh, so, but uh, of course, at the end of 20 years, he didn't change the peasants, the pe- peasants changed him. I mean, I literally remember visiting him in Inner Mongolia in a little backwater town uh, back then, and uh, seeing in front of my eyes this, 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 you know, um, high school bright student from an elite Beijing high school 20 years later, I couldn't tell him apart from any of those local, you know, peasants who would be squatting uh, there in the, by the train station selling eggs or potatoes. He was just one of them. Wow. Um, that was, you know, that phase. But then I think his next phase is he finally got totally disillusioned with all that after Tiananmen. And he realized, you know, this was the wrong utopian or revolution that he was engaged on. So he made a total turnaround and decided, basically, democracy is the new cause. And the root of all, you know, problems in China was called the Communist Party. I think, you know, that was, I mean, I'm maybe reducing his, his sense then, I think he's become quite, I really was uh, quite um, impressed by, he's a very good student of new things since he's been in jail for nine years, he's read a ton of books, and since his release, he's caught up with the new media, he's, you know, sort of, I think, become, this is maybe an oxymoron, but he's like a moderate among the radicals. Oh, um, so among that diehard small community of dissidents, I think he's emerged more and more as a, a firm but a moderate voice. How did you see him, you know, go into the sort of more moderate stance? What was it that he, were there any kind of the inflection points in that development? It happened, I think, over the, you know, um, the last maybe 10 years or so, uh, when I think he realized it, this is, 
a long haul. It's、right. not gonna. The revolution is not gonna happen. Not gonna be mass uprising just because you know people realize you know this is the wrong system. So we're gonna just you know pay everybody will be on the street and have a new revolution. That's not gonna happen.、Uh, though he would be one of those forever telling you never say never.、Right. Things are not predictable, so don't rule that out. But that's not what you operate from. So, how about you and the rest of your family? I mean, as you watched your brother, you know,、uh, develop or get in trouble or whatever、mm. you like to call his activities、yeah. of the last twenty years, were you worried about him? Did you try and dissuade him from doing it? Were you worried it might affect you and your other families,、uh, your other family members?、Uh, I have to say, you know, as a little sister, I kind of. You know, kind of admired him as、mm. a hero from a childhood on. So I never—I mean, this is even though we didn't quite grow up together because he went to the boarding school and then he went to Inner Mongolia and just sort of disappeared, right, for 20 years. But we have always had a sort of a bond. Maybe we had always things in common to talk to. So I sort of followed his, if you say. Transformation or intellectual journey enough to know, and I also know him as a as a, this character.、Uh, I mean, he's long told me this is my fate, and he's. I mean, this is what he told me. Basically, the first time I visited him in jail, he said, "I knew I was going to get here," and I'm actually I never tried to dissuade him from what he does.、Mm. I know he would follow it to. I mean, he basically. To this day, he would say, you know, he's prepared to go back to jail any time for any length of the time, and he's basically prepared to die in jail if it comes to that. So, and I, I, I would, I mean, I this actually when I wrote about in a sentimental way, a, a, a hero. He's a, actually a flawed character. He's a human, you know, person. He's a t- disastrous businessman, for example. <laughs> before、Imagine、he、that. actually turned, you know, after he came back to 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 the city, you know,、uh, he had a lot of things. And certain radical this part of him, we quarreled, and we didn't quite really was not always on the same wavelengths. But I understood him enough to know that's the meaning of his life. This so you, is his cause. There's, no point, I, there's no point. No, I, I don't think、trying. I ever tried to say no. This is not what you should be doing. I basically my role is to just try to understand him, give him whatever form of support I could. But there's plenty of other members in our、uh, Jack. Family. There's a large clan. There, his own mother, other sister, their relatives, cousins. There are a lot of people who try to talk him out of it.、Uh, basically, pleading on the cause of you know both to think for the rest of the family, for others, or that this is a hopeless you know this、mm. is a hopeless cause. You're just on a suicidal you know mission. So there's plenty of people who are doing that, right? But but okay. So another sort of related issue: Do you ever worry that your writing, particularly your writing about him, will get him into more trouble in China?、Uh, I thought about um, that um, from very early on. I you know the two main pieces I wrote about him. One was when he was still in jail, and I thought there's no place worse that. You know anything could get him. This what as a writer I 
the only thing I can do, I can't do what he he does, you know, and I I don't intend to what, do what he he does, but I can write about a character like him, and I feel that is almost my mission if I have one to tell stories like that that would give me a, a kind of a meaning maybe in certain space. Because at that point, even though he was spending, you know, nine years in jail, no one knew who who he was. I mean, that party was little known because he was crushed so utterly, so uh, swiftly, and none of the Chinese media in in China reported about the, any of this. And because he's a latecomer, he's not like someone like Wei Jingsheng who had earlier had an uh, episode when China was, you know, still relatively open. People knew about him. So he was a in total obscure, you know, person doing this thing uh, uh, in this tiny cell, right? So I thought the only thing I could do is to tell his story. And but then this more recently, um, this this about the police state was him again as you know the main character in it. Again, I thought about whether this is going to get him in more trouble, and I didn't think so. But still, I made. You know, the one point I I did insist was uh, not to have the famous New Yorker fact checkers to call him beforehand, because I know all his phones and everything was tapped and monitored, and so I didn't tell him I was writing this, so he didn't see it even after it came out, and only after it was translated into Chinese and began to circulate on WeChat that he read it in one of the uh, groups. So he's just like, ha! You know, I saw this. So I said, oh, you know, sorry, I'm I'm just playing a little innocent joke on you. You know, I knew you would find out, but uh, I wanted eight thousand word joke. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So uh, I think this is maybe the first time he actually is a little worried about me. um, Whether this would get give me any trouble of uh, traveling back, uh, you know, back and forth. So he was actually released in what, 07, is that right? Uh, 08. Oh, 08, yeah. right. Uh, and just in time to sign Charter 08. Right? <laughs> he actually uh, was a signatory on Charter 08, which is interesting. Because what I think is, 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 is fascinating is that, so he emerged from jail in 2008, and, and we, you know, you just mentioned WeChat, mm-hmm. and now he's active in these WeChat circles. He emerged into a whole new world of, of, of social media, mm-hmm. of a, a blooming public sphere, beginning with, you know, the, the, the BBSs, these, you know, online internet forums, and then graduating into Weibo. And mm-hmm. he's been very active on all of these things. He has some room, apparently, to express his dissident political ideas. Mm-hmm. It's very clearly circumscribed, mm-hmm. but he does have some room. Can you talk, talk about the room that he has had and what he's done with that room. He has apparently been completely unapologetic. He's just continued to push to the yeah. limits, right? Yeah. So it's interesting because he does seem to delineate what the limits are by what he can, yeah. he can do, right? Right, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, in fact, you know, this new media, actually we're talking about the new media, but uh, before that there was still the traditional media, right? The uh, newspapers from the... Um, uh, after recovering from the initial kind of complete, you know, shock of Tiananmen, had in fact through the early 90s when the market reform was going ahead, was deliberately, you know, a lot of the intellectual journalists' energies were channeled into a relatively liberal 
uh, media in many forms. In these, you you think about these uh, southern well, southern uh, newspaper group, the the weekend editions that loosen up. Um, you know that that Lin was Dian and stuff like that. yeah, Lingdian. There's a whole range of them, and um, so I I think in that phase there's a lot of uh, liberal uh, journalists and reporters who you know. Seize that moment and try to, you know, uh, write in a more relatively. I mean, censorship was always around, uh, but you know, um, in that space, I think a lot of liberal uh, people were having a platform to spread their message and to push for a kind of um, a political reform or more, just more, more. Uh, uh, you know, freedom in general, or there's a cultural, you know, kind of a more cultural spaces that are not official. That I mean, you're part of that. I mean, you're in Beijing. There's, you know, rock. You know, there were rock groups, jazz groups. There are all these, and there's these salon types. My brother, though, did not come to all that until. I would say, like、uh, he had to recover from, you know, not being around for nine years in jail, right? So after, I think、uh, maybe two o ten. It was maybe about the time he began to write these blog pieces,、uh, and he's of course is strictly in this kind of political commentary form. So, and given the he's really uncompromisingly, you know, critical、uh, stance and views, that of course could only be circulated in this space where you know there are pockets of more, you know,、uh, on the internet that. Can air such pieces and views. You're not talking about main spaces like、right. portals, like in、uh, vape. You know, I mean, in which in、uh, the comments to pieces, and it's yeah, in, and then、right. it gets reposted. It gets onto appear in some overseas Chinese websites, and then it gets circulated back. So it's this whole kind of combination of you know channels and free and semi-free. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's really just the leakiness of the surveillance and、uh, policing systems.、Okay. Think that is allowing the space to exist. It's not out of design. Well, they've even cracked down on that, though, right? I mean,、yeah. in recent years, it's gotten much harder for him to be much harder,、yeah. increasingly harder. Even though you know, from the beginning, someone like him was banned from publishing anything in official, you know,、uh, media, right? But they know what people like him are doing and publishing, and they basically allowed that space. Uh, to you know, to carry on. Well,、um, are you talking about the golden liberal era of Hu Jintao and Wen Taba that we so fondly remember? Yeah, we're we laugh, all. We laugh, but it's true. All, <laughs> it's true. I mean, but now, of course, we're all on the kind of、uh, receiving end of some, I think,、uh, irony. Of harboring that kind of uh, uh, nostalgia uh, for, no, for so, those days, yeah. I mean. Well, because we're all on the pointy end now. We're on the pointy end of right. Yeah. So, <laughs>、uh, if I may ask, Jianguo is apparently determined to stay in China, and Jianguo,、um, yeah. he doesn't want to come to the United States and join his daughters or you, and he basically thinks that、uh, China is where he should be. Can you explain his thinking about this? Is it that, like some dissidents say, if you Exile, go into exile. You become irrelevant, and you know you are unable to do anything positive about China anyway. Or what is his his thinking? 
Yeah, that is a big fear. You know, I mean, to this day, I think a lot of Chinese exiles, I still feel the loss of this sort of mother language, home space, where they could be doing, in my brother's language, will be, you know, fighting the battle on the front, you know, <laughs> front line. You have to be where, you know, the, 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 the battle is, right? If you're, you're cut off from that, you know, then you have no voice, you have no space, and they're not the kind of, especially people of, his generation, they don't feel they can actually cross over to a different language and culture and has still have a meaningful kind of existence. So China is what they hang on to. And I think some of the earlier exiles who were forced out Still, you know, I, I, I know some of them in New York, for yeah, example. Sure. You know, you feel this forever kind of nostalgia or bitterness about being an exile. And we see this in exiles everywhere. You know, if you, you, you read Hurston's, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, big book on uh, uh, my past, my thoughts, I think that, that all that, er, you know, early Russian exiles, even though they were culturally and linguistically actually much better positioned in Europe, they're all like multilingual and all that. And once they're, they left Russia, you know, they feel like they're cut off. Right. From and, and I think part of that is is my brother's you know feeling that uh, he doesn't want to leave, even if he stays in jail. And in some some ways, some people who now see China as a giant jail, right. you know, if you're you're you know you're doing that kind of thing, basically you have very limited space to operate. But still, they want to be there. Well, the other thing about going into exile is that you see what happens to them. They all fall to squabbling with one another. They, factionalism. Uh, yeah, there's this yeah. terrible factionalism. I mean, is yeah. he aware of that? And, and how do yes. you diagnose yeah. that? Why does that happen? Why do you suppose it is that these these The people... most vicious fighting is amongst Chinese dissidents right. in New York. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> terrible, the, the things yeah. they say about each other. Right. Yeah. Why, why do you suppose that happens? Well, I mean, it's, I think it's easy for me to kind of lapse into the, the, the usual kind of uh, lament about this is part of the byproduct of, you know, a totalitarian kind of culture, totalitarian uh, politics. In fact, you know, you're the mirror image of your enemies. Exactly. So in, in fact, you know, as soon as you, it doesn't mean that, you, you know, you're fighting your enemy, you become something else. You may be still the same animal. You know, so you, you turn around and start fighting within yourselves and you see spies around you and you begin to see in the same way, in the same black and white white way, like the, the your enemy, which is the Communist Party. Uh, that The uh, same you know, authoritarian habits of exactly. mind. Yeah, exactly. And the mm-hmm. same hierarchy, the same suspicion, right. <laughs> uh, all that purge that happened um, in in China. I mean, in fact, this is not also this is not particularly Chinese either. I've, um, I've had so. that, that conversation with a lot of people, and, and one of the more persuasive suggestions that I've heard is that the kind of people who take up political dissidence activism in China, it takes a certain personality type. They're going to be exceptionally brave, for one thing. They're also going to be, they're going to be egotistical. They're going to be extreme individualists. They're going to be megalomaniacal in some cases. They're going to they be monolithical. They're going to be sexist in many ways. <laughs> and recently why, why, I've why discovered sexist? among some of my longtime, I don't know, I used to think of them as liberals. Now I think maybe they need a different hat or label, you know, uh, who are 
they're sex. Some of them, some of them are now in the like more recent phenomenon. Say some of them have really a lot of trouble with Me Too, the movement, which it had a, a kind of a, a, a short play in in China. I mean, it's not ending, it's, but it, it started there too. And some of my, you know, I thought liberal Chinese friends had trouble with that. And there's lots of people who have trouble with the Islamic culture. But, you know, some of them, I mean, this is, I think, you know, underneath these views, I mean, what's underneath the, the sort of Chinese, let's see, this is another, maybe oxymoron, <laughs> Chinese liberal Trump fans. Is yeah. there such a thing? Right. Liberal God, Trump right. fans. Yeah, yeah. I've discovered yeah. since the two, two, you know, since this last U.S. election, a lot of my Chinese uh, liberal friends, because in Chinese, these labels are all right. needs for the their explanation. I mean, it's, again, it's, it's a mirror yeah. image, like the, the right in China. Is, yeah, is, because right. they're, they're, they're defined as, you know, to the party, the Communist Party started as the ultra-left. Right. So anybody who's against the party is basically actually on the right. If you think about the 1957 anti-rightist campaign, right, these are the, the newer generation of that rightists in China. But in, in, the, in the sort of political, usual political uh, spectrum of chi- talking about Chinese politics, they're all lumped together as ziyopai, which yeah. means liberals, right. right? You see the same and, phenomenon and so- in Eastern Europe. A lot of, a lot of Czech or Polish, uh, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. liberals are actually quite uh, enamored with these kind of Trumpian authoritarian characters. It's, it's very unfortunate. Let us yeah. turn now to the vacation that your brother was forced to take. Um, well, the several. Well, yeah, the several. <laughs> the vacations, sorry. The vacations, the series of guided tours <laughs> that your brother was forced, forced to take. Can you, you know, set the scene for us? Mm. Well, you know, uh, for those you haven't read the piece, I basically, uh, you know, tracked on... Uh, from I think 2012 is where he put in particular. I don't know whether there are other Beiliu before that year, but he's definitely started around 2012 and increased with frequency. I think back then maybe it's once or twice a year on these so-called sensitive days, which means like, like anniversary of TM. <laughs> There's now something now, right, the calendar is filled with sensitive days. Right? <laughs> it's like the birthday, right? Every right. day is on birthday now. But anyway, so th- back then there were just these certain like anniversaries or party congress. Uh, but now, you know, because China has emerged, you know, into this global kind of uh, powerhouse, so all kinds of global forums that's held in Beijing or in Qingdao or in Shanghai also become sensitive days. And so on such occasions, the police would usually take certain, you know, a selective numbers of troublemakers out of the site of that city, wherever that forum or party congress is happening. Take them out of the city on these beautiful locations, say a beach resort or the northwestern, if it's the summer, maybe to the north, northeast uh, for usually a week, or in the case of my brother, sometimes it could be two weeks. Um, All expenses paid. (laughs) All expenses paid, and usually with his uh, handlers, uh, you know, uh, 
doing everything, taking everything, booking the tickets, hotels, and taking him everywhere on site, including snapshots of him on these, uh, you know, scenic spots. Uh, so, it, it, you know, I think the rationale, of course, is oh, to maintain security and a perfect city so that no troublemakers will raise hell by talking to foreign media, complaining about Chinese politics, or some of these, uh, you know, particularly loud, uh, you know, petitioners might go on the street or get themselves in front of Tiananmen and, and st- all of a sudden show up with a placket or whatever. So you take them out, right, and treat them really nicely, but make sure their cell phones is in your possession or they can't, uh. they have no access to to anything so no internet no internet no internet yeah uh but uh, another side of this one of those holidays (laughs) jeremy i think you qualify as a troublemaker and you could easily were you to go back to beijing i think they would happily take you on such a holiday i also think whoever come up with this idea must be a brilliant you know entrepreneur it's genius it's totally business i almost thought you know maybe harvard business school could write a case story about this this is innovation with the public security bureau yeah really weirdly kafka-esque i mean is that the right? Yeah. I mean, it's it is. It's, it's, it's just. Um, is that, I'm not sure. Ca- not exactly. Well, Kafka. It's kind <laughs> of from midway between Kafka and Huxley. Yeah, Huxley. Right, know. right. There's also it's, the, that it's, sort of it's like the you know Orwellian brave new world. This, yeah, play, I don't in, know. Into, right into submission. Yeah, and it's a long food chain because you know the you know it's in the interest of these police to have these troublemakers, right? So that that would be their reason to have a free vacation. So you would see this phenomenon in Beijing, but also in different provincial cities, sometimes with the excuse, even though the, 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 the conference or the whatever, the forum is actually happening elsewhere, but the local police could use that to get some of their local characters you know, they would want to escort them. Right. Their local I mean, troublemakers you, you on to, vacation. Yeah, right. you, you get a vacation too. So. Yeah, there's there's a real incentive to, to do this. Uh, wasn't it the case that that they would like carry his luggage for him? They were incredibly solicitous, right? Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. They it, you know they would like make sure to see to all his comforts. He was eating lavishly and they were eating. Drinking. Well, I don't know how lavish because I'm not sure they would their budget would allow five star hotels. Okay, okay, still, but still, but they're, they're still they're very well treated, and he's definitely treated almost, instead of being their hostage, he's like their patron. Uh, and you, the, 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 maybe the particularly dark comedy part of this is, you know, they often get lumped together. They're, they're mistaken by other real tourists on these tours, because sometimes the police book uh, their group, say my brother and his three agents, right? They're all in plain clothes. So nobody, of course, could tell this is a bailey or they, they look like real tourists. So sometimes on these tours, they get on the same bus, visiting the same sites with the real tourists. And the real tourists, sometimes, you know how gossipy and nosy yeah, some yeah, Chinese and, and you're bored some. on these buses. So <laughs> Who are these two people? They're all male, and they're always hung together. They're inseparable. And it's very easy to guess, you know, my brother usually being the older one, and everybody's serving him. What do they Even think on they the meal tables. They, they're like, boss? They, they would guess, oh, is this is your boss? Is he your boss? Or, or what's your relationship? You know, like, you're, you're, are you uncles? And, and, you know, is this your your family vacation? And, and they would show him 
such deference, it seems such a respect, right? At the meal table, they would, uh, you know, get a tian fan, you know, like scoop out more rice and, and soup and this and that. So he's being treated as if he's the boss. So this is really, I don't know if it's Kafka. Maybe I, I think you need to write a new, we, 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 this needs to be Jai-esque, perhaps. You yeah. have to write a new novel. Um, so when he was first, uh, well, not first, when he was arrested in 2017, uh, and that, uh, you know, in your piece, it's a pretty funny tableau uh, with him sitting in a massage parlor, uh, getting a herbal facial um, <laughs> when the cops bust down the door, more or less, to come and yeah. get him. Um, it, that arrest was actually for something that he'd written that in a Chinese context is pretty incendiary, I would say. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. he stopped short of calling for a military coup, but, it, you know, that was the, yeah. the, the, the feeling of the piece. Right. What was your reaction when you saw what he'd written? Um. I, I was actually traveling in Hubei when I saw that he wrote up this new blog. I didn't pay attention to it because I was traveling. But then when I got to Beijing, I first heard from a professor, this um, guy, Beida professor, uh, Zhang Qianfan. He just sent me, he said, I heard your brother is taken away. And I didn't even get super alarmed because he's such a veteran with police. It's just jia chang bian fan, you know, it's like every day police follow him. And this was right a few days before Tiananmen anniversary. So I thought, oh, nothing out unusual. Then I realized this is different because he was taken away and he was put in an unknown detention site to, for interrogation for that one WeChat piece, which he was accused of, I mean, he wasn't, he was really written like that, you know, like a, like a, a, a roadmap in for case a of, a, coup, yeah, right. in case of a mass, you know, an unexpected incident turns into, leads into a military coup. Uh, what he actually meant was that there's always a chance when an unexpected mass incidents happens on a sensitive time, given the, the pent up uh, discontent, the military might not follow the order, might disobey the order to open fire. So this could be different from 1989. So that was basically his scenario. But the mention of a military coup uh, leading to, I mean, there's a whole th- scenario after that of changing government, changing regime and all that, uh, just spooked somehow the police and the censors uh, about this. So, and he, of course, his piece gets reposted to a lot of groups. So they basically had to stop this. And they were threatening him and trying to make him pledge uh, not to write anything like this. But the they, were, they were tr- bending over backward to give him like, oh, I, I think you might have meant this, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he would say, no, I really meant this. Oh, but maybe we misinterpreted it as this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. giving him all these outs. Yeah, right? always the agent in the course of this long interrogation first tried to say, look, you, you didn't really repost it. You didn't send it to a lot of groups, right? So meaning, you know, this oh, is yes, maybe did. not a lot of you. <laughs> he said, no, absolutely, yes. I said, so maybe you copied this from someone else. Maybe you are not the author. He said, no, I absolutely 100% sure. So they were after this, they were trying, and they were very polite to him. They call him in this very, you know, reverential term, Jalao means, you know, yeah. the Jia, the elder. elder yeah, the elder Jia. And they said, so they finally said, God, we were we were already chided by our, our leaders to be too soft on you. And now you're calling for a military coup. You know, you, you're making, you're putting us in such an impossible situation. 
<laughs> but all the time, they really, they still didn't lose their. So in fact, the way to read that situation is not just they're acting this way through sheer humanity, because I think they also wanted this whole case to be seen as not so out of hand, maybe not stirring up wider circles, so they're not going to be blamed. The police themselves are not going to be They're part blamed. of the crime, in other yeah, words. Exactly. So, so they want to minimize the crime. Exactly. To control the damage that right. way. Right. Yeah. Jing, you talk about uh, your own crowd of generally wealthy, pretty sophisticated urban friends in Beijing, your circle of people. These are, um, let me quote from your story. You, you wrote, the people I'm friends with in Beijing, you call them up, but you write of them, yet many Chinese liberals doubt that the Western system is feasible in their country. They fret about the burden of history, about the prospect of chaos and mob rule. In their own lives, they avoid radicals and former political prisoners for fear that such associations might jeopardize their personal freedom. They shun the sort of political action that could put their comfortable lifestyle at risk. I, I've often urged people uh, that they, they ought to try to understand these types of people, people I would describe as being this, maybe the center of gravity, really, among educated elites in China. I suspect that there's this imputation here in the U.S. of a kind of moral cowardice to these people with the attitudes that you describe. Uh, maybe I've just spent too much time in the company of just such people, but I feel like I can really quite empathize with them. Yeah, I think we all spend maybe a lot of time with yeah. that people. I, I would say that, yeah, most of I, this is a much, much, much bigger block uh, of, you know, under this cap, what I describe as moderate liberals in China. They're basically what usually in the, maybe in the West um, media, they're called the new middle class. Uh, or And so in urban, uh, they're, a lot of them are, are in cities. A lot of them are educated. A lot of them have traveled uh, internationally, you know, internationally. Yeah. and a lot of them have themselves have studied abroad or they have children now studied abroad, and they've done well uh, in the last you know, 30 years or so of reform. But in terms of ideas, in terms of their sympathies, intellectual sympathies, they are actually with the democracy, and I mean, they, they feel this is the way to go. However, one, they, uh, maybe they know too much about Chinese history, and they feel the Chinese history casts such a long shadow. They're, in fact, they're part of that shadow, too, you know, that there's a reluctant to believe that uh, this system could change fundamentally. It could follow the Western model in the Chinese context. You know, they, they would think that a better way to go is gradual reform, incremental change, rather than the kind of wholesale change or radical change people like my brother are advocating. What does your brother think and of people like that? I think he feel he, I, we've talked many times about you know, they being a, a tiny minority versus this larger, you know, uh, educated class who, you know, don't see it that way. And are maybe, are they cowards? Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I can't, you can't just say, no, they're heroic. No, they're not. I, I don't think so. I mean, my, myself included. I, I picked a different route. Let's just face it. I'm not willing to be a hero in the sense of my brother, of going to jail for this kind of belief. But do I share the same belief and this is the way China should go? Yes, absolutely. But I think my brother 
has always expressed an understanding about most people would see see the way China changed in that light and not in his light. Right. So it's not he would be the last person to say those are cowards and they should be, you know, morally, you know, uh, judged. I, I as, feel like here in, in the U.S. when we think of a Chinese intellectual, when we look at the New York Times and we see uh, another op-ed written by a Chinese intellectual, who is it? It's always Yuhua. It's always Murong Xuechun. It's always People whose views are very comfortable for Westerners. Right. But, yeah, but, but you know, that are quite, but we don't spend much time trying to understand this yeah. larger group and and we we really kind of dismiss them as uh, yeah. you know people who are sort of morally cowardly in some way and, and I think that's really unfortunate I think that is a big difference I mean the people who do get these people and and in in empathize with the choices that they make made yeah. just Based on their own understanding of Chinese history, right? Yeah, and uh, I also, also, you, there's a, this crowd is not all of one piece. I mean, there are uh. different gradations of of engagement or choices. Some would not be willing to do what people like my brother. That's the ultimate opposition to organize the opposition, right? By forming a party, by expl- doing by pen direct assault on the system, on the party state. But there are all these other, you might call public intellectuals or bloggers who are very critical, but write in a, you might say, in a more moderate or artful language or engage in different issues, maybe not frontal organizational kind of politics, but they might be um, talking about how to reform the education, how to educate the the rural areas, the push for NGO activities, broaden using the art, foster artistic freedom as a way to go forward. All of them are making contributions, in fact, to the same cause in different ways. Of course, can I interrupt and say this group of people then, I mean, if we can call them liberal... uh, Moderate liberals. Moderate Moderate liberals, liberals, you know, who are, you know, actually trying to do something. Um... I mean, there's a chill in China right now yes. among this yeah. group of people. Um, what's your sense of, of, of how they're reacting? And if, if we had to take a timeline, because, I mean, I think we're all pretty clear that Xi Jinping is a big part of why mm-hmm. there, there, yeah. there is so much repression yeah. of free speech and you know, right. yeah. any kind of dissonant activities in China. But it started a little earlier. Can you track a timeline? At what point did you notice perhaps some of your more liberal friends perhaps blogging less or yeah. not at all or you know not being so forthright in their public yeah. statements. Because that's definitely a thing, right? right yeah. Right. I, I think even as um, Xi Jinping took over the party leadership, you know, that's 2012, there's still a, a good chunk of this moderate liberals uh, who still had hope that maybe, you know, what has gradually been, you know, there are incremental changes and there are even moments where you feel, oh, free speech was getting like a lot of play, you know. Uh, right. then there are people who are saying, you know, these liberal intellectuals and journalists are taking over the media. You know, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but you, you uh, get the mood. 2003, 2004, and 2011. Yeah, 2012 with, you know, the, the constitutionalism movement. I mean, yeah, 2012. Yeah, and that's, that, that's the year when Xi Jinping took over and spoke this language of you know, like yeah. we'll, we'll do rule of law and put power into the cage. Mm. All that give 
you know, this really, uh, you know, optimistic feeling for, I would say, at least a year, the first year. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we, we, we talked earlier about there are people who uh, saw the writing on the wall. So right. Yeah, well, like, one of those we were talking about. Uh, Jeremy Barmé, for right. example. Who, I mean, he, yeah. he, in I think 2010, yeah. when we first kind of knew that Xi Jinping was going to, I mean, it was already the talk of Beijing and Xi Jinping was the guy. Well, we yeah. knew in 07, but... Oh seven. I mean, some even yeah. earlier. I mean, I worked with his niece in like uh, two thousand. <laughs> Who's niece? Xi Jinping's niece. Oh, um, yeah. I worked with her in two thousand and two, <laughs> and um, uh, you know, at that time there was already this incredible aura around. Everybody knew right, he, right. he was He's going the places. Anointed one, right, yeah. Right. yeah. But um, we, I, I think a lot of people. But yeah, Jeremy Barmy was one of those who, way, way early on, basically said, "This guy is wants to remake China. He wants to surpass Mao." You know. Yeah, uh, I think. I mean, I you know, I I met Jeremy last year, uh, talking about being myself, uh, putting myself in the doghouse because he was asking me, "Why are you not writing this?" You know what I, I said? I I feel I need to you know. Uh, you know, some period of rethinking, uh, be, being one of the hopefuls for so long. Right. Um, you know, I, I would put myself in one of the hopeful for graduate reform camp, uh, cautiously hoping things could go on. I can uh, imagine what nasty, um, nastily <laughs> cynical thing Jeremy said in response Jeremy, to that. <laughs> I, I know, and Jeremy is the, the, the bad boy of China studies, right? right forever. But so he, he basically was, it was saying, you know, that this, this was inevitable in a way from Tiananmen on maybe, you know, maybe even that earlier sense, from when sense, the, yeah. uh, but there's a, you know, there's, I, I would say, yes, all of us need, in in retrospect, people like Jeremy is right, turns out to be right. Yeah, this is, this is bad news For when the wrong Xi Jinping reasons, came but in. Yeah, right. yeah, but I, I would say too, uh, aside from some soul probing, I would not regret one, uh, two, one, one point is that I don't quite buy that everything is inevitable. Right. Uh, you, as long as it's a communist party, things were just hopelessly uh, Aaron Hauser's. So, you know, there's someone named Gorbachev that happened under a communist party too. We can split hairs about the difference between Soviet Union and China, but basically it's the same. It's two brothers in the same, you know, party state system. So there, there's always, you know, you can't say, even though I'm not saying the, the uh, Xi Jinping obviously was the creature of the system. He did not create all this, okay? The, the system created him. Uh, so, but there's always unpredictability of, you know, an accident that could be, say, Bo Xilai or Li Keqiang became the, the number two. Things yeah, would not one. be totally different mm -hmm. between number one. It would not be totally, it would still be the Communist Party. It but would if Boise Lai was top dog, we would, it'd be so it much more fun. It would be a different. <laughs> <laughs> more fun, yeah. Well, it's a little more urban. In, in the than sense of interesting country. times yeah, fun. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, but, no, um, it would have been really more fun fun. <laughs> yeah. Also, I think, you know, people engaged in, in China fighting for whatever through education or art or, you know, pushing the envelope of, you know, um, free expression, that hope was important for them to have that hope to to do to feel these work are meaningful and i'm not ready to say it's all down in the tubes so you uh, you haven't given up hope yet uh, not Completely. that kind of hope because right. i mean not it's not like oh everything we did in the last 20 years was for naught 
because I think people, if you look at Chinese society, you know, right now it it does. I mean, I, let me tell you, it's pretty gloomy, uh, especially yeah, among yeah. the intellectuals or the educated middle, even the, among the moderate liberals. We're talking about. Yeah, I think the the end of term limits really was one of those inflection points where people yes, really freaked out. I, mean, I was actually in Beijing when that, when that happened, was, right? And it changed know, everything. Right? It, every people, even the, some of the people who saw. I have to say, myself included, before that, we've been talking for at least two years that this is going to happen. However, when the other shoe actually dropped, all the jaw fell. I mean, everybody was flabbergasted for a moment yeah. that this actually happened and pulled through without uh, opposition. I hate it when you right. right. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I was one of those, yeah. and partly because of Jeremy Barmay's influence, who predicted, I think, in 2012 <laughs> right. that yeah, he was right. going to try and hang on to power for life. Yeah. And I felt still it actually happened and you were still yeah. kind of shocked <laughs> yeah yeah i mean so, the actual even just the term limit mm. thing was basically predicted for at least two years yeah i would yeah. say people yeah. say oh this is gonna happen uh and it happened and still everybody realizes this is a watershed event i was in beijing i realized you know i, I remember that and it's both the chinese intellectual and the whole west if you, I remember the the Economist uh, cover article. Right after that is, the cover line was how the West uh, how the West got China wrong, right. and this was the I think the first editorial after the term limit yeah. was stripped, and you could see this is a major wake up call. Well, I had some problems with that piece anyway. So I, I, one, <laughs> well, we have some time left. But I, I want to talk to you about one thing that uh, I, I it's it's really important to me. I've I'm somebody who's long believed. That the way to understand that one of the primary engines of Chinese history is the relationship between intellectuals and the, the state, mm. whether it's the imperial state or the present party state. Understanding the the relationship between intellectuals and the state is crucial to understanding how politics moves, how history moves in China. Uh, I was in Beijing during the spring of 1989 in Tiananmen when we were there, and I saw a lot of the events unfold from within the square. And I was always struck by one thing. I, you know, I, I watched things happen. I, I, th I talked to a lot of people. I thought I sort of understood what was going on, but you know, with my sort of kitchen level Chinese back then, I realized that there was this whole level of discourse that was happening that I was not privy to. There was this whole sort of semiotics, this very highly historically conditioned, very symbolic language in the actions in 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 some of the the way that that that. Uh, remonstrance was done and I started to sort of I realized it was it's sort of like watching Peking opera and not knowing that that general on stage with all the flags on his back is supposed to be leading an army or that the guy with that tassel uh oh the, the the stick with the tassels on was riding a horse and not understanding the symbolism and I realized there was this whole layer underneath it and I, I that I didn't get and so I spent many years afterward trying to understand that. And I, I think I came to a, a much better understanding, but I, I still think it's a perfect doll. I feel like your writings on China really help to help people to understand the way that the state relates to critical intellectuals, to the kind of mainstream intellectuals that we're talking about. Uh, first of all, I guess, do you do you agree that, that that's, that's an important uh, thing? Uh, do, do, you, do you believe that there's something unique to China uh, about the role that intellectuals play in the political life of the country? And do you think that that's something that isn't well understood outside of China? Um, yeah, well, in the China uh, 
study circles or observers, everybody know that the the tradition of shi, which is yeah. the traditional word for intellectual, right? That through the the Confucius tradition and all this um, the the state exams, you know. Um, basically, the intellectuals play a very uh, particular role, an important role of advising the emperor right. and, then, and now the leaders, right, about the direction of the country, or they also are seen as a spokespeople, uh, spokesperson uh, uh, for the, the common people. The, the common people's right. cause. So they champion the common people. So they're given a special kind of status or platform to either govern or change the society. So that is why right now this whole ruthless crackdown on the intellectuals by stripping, removing basically a lot of these platforms for their voices are so uh, disturbing disturbing and, you know, cast such a, a chilling Effect because they lost that platform, and so if you go to Beijing now, I mean, I I feel I was in there for half a year last year through all that term limit and and I saw all these you know private dinners where people like you know kvetching or stunned and drink you know all these drink parties and there are lots <laughs> of people who just feel like despair, a, a sense of feeling of despair and defection. Then, and they're, they're defecting from. They were a loyal opposition, right? They, they saw themselves as a loyal opposition or a loyal advisor or some a part of the reformed force that's also connected with the the system because there are people, such people in the government too. We're not talking about that's just right. Right. professors yeah. and, yeah. And, and and journalists. And that platform is suddenly pulled from under. They and had these channels of. Yeah. Of consultation, and suddenly they're, they're yeah. not—they're just plugging their ears, not not listening to them. And then not only that is replaced by this, you know, stodgy, you know, mass, you know, kind of sounding Maoist-like uh, ideological indoctrination, you know, indoctrination, yeah. and all the political, you know, this old molded. People thought that that was already buried in the dustpan of history, even in China. Now they're just like. Dust it off and came back to the classroom. And put it on a mobile phone so you can um, then monitor. <laughs> yeah, in <laughs> you know? the in the classrooms yeah. and all this. So the, the, I think the intellectuals are now the liberals part of them. I because mean, some of them are just now become the spokesperson for the new party state. Or there are lots of that types too. Or, you know, thinking they're riding with this uh, rising global power that's called uh, the new era of China, right? The Xin the, Shidai, right? Uh, and but then the others are just doing this familiar. This is not the first time that happened to this class of people. Retreat to their study or to their banquet rooms, to their drinking and, and you know, doing scholarship. And I'm not saying everybody give up, but everybody senses this is a winter and you don't know how long it's going to last. So, of course, being intellectuals, some of them are doing what they're best at, which is they think, oh, maybe this is the time to write my big book. <laughs> right, but maybe that's, for that the future. Like, so none of them have a stomach for the fight. None of them are going to join Zazianguo on the streets. Uh, no. Even <laughs> my brother is not quite on the street anymore. Right, right, this, right, right. I mean, they're, they're new activists uh, by younger people, but not of the same brand. For example, there are these Marxists 
you know, students from Beida,、mm. they're joining the labor, you know, the labor、uh, forces in, in Shenzhen.、Right. They're also immediately get shut. So anything organized resistance or opposition have very limited space or lifespan. So and everybody see that. So right now, I think you know, there's just this shocked, you know, effect of people being silenced, you know, and. Lost their language and you know retreating to their private. So、space. so go back to the days of Choti.、Uh, Choti Wenxue. Choti Wenxue. The literature for for the drawer.、Uh, for the drawer. So you you write it and you put it in your drawer and you you never、I、show it to anyone. Yeah. Or the other expression、yeah. is、uh, like we mentioned this these Trump supporters.、Mm. I think、Ugh. the despair drive them to this. Just just write just Choti Wenxue is a better choice. <laughs> The, well, the irony is 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 so loud. I was hoping、right? you were going to steer this、uh, so we could end on some kind of a happy note, a, a slightly happy note. I think this that's is the wrong podcast for happy note. They, no, <laughs> well, that's a, the sign of despair is because they feel only through an external force.、Right. Maybe that could pressure、hmm. things to over. So they would lodge even their hope on a strongman or a liberal, you know, figure from abroad. At least, you know. It's they will call、uh, it takes a bigger hooligan to fight、uh, a, a smaller hooligan. Before U.S. become too weakened, you may as well have、uh, you know a, a, a real Liu Mang, right? This is the Liu Mang in chief. Well, yeah, he yeah, is. I, I will.、Chief. I will give him that credit. He is a big fucking Liu Mang. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry,、so. I didn't mean to swear.、Uh, I did mean to swear. Okay, now, but. We we actually we're we're running long. <laughs> Why? Yeah, I mean, we. I guess, sorry, everyone. Sorry we could、me. actually stay here all evening. Oh,、uh, we could. <laughs> I mean, lots more. I'm casting about for a way to end more happy. But let's. Why don't we do this instead and just move on to recommendations? And yeah, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, my guy. <laughs> oh,、God. you still haven't got a recommendation. Went back. Yeah, you'll <laughs>、right. think of one. Um, because、yeah. we'll let Jeremy go first. Um,、okay. so before we we get to recommendations, I do want to remind everybody that Cynical Podcast is powered by Sub China. And、uh, if you like what we're doing, the best thing that you can do to support our work is to subscribe to SubChina Access, which gets you all sorts of goodies, like the full daily newsletter, discounts to our events. Those of you who are Access members came here free tonight and saved twenty bucks.、Uh, it gets you all sorts of all sorts of goodies. You can harangue our editorial staff on our Slack channel. That is really fun. Like Lucas here, and,、um, you can give him all sorts of. Anyway,、uh, I want to make sure also that you all subscribe to.、Uh, The、uh, latest member of the Seneca Network, which is a terrific new podcast called Middle Earth, the Middle Earth podcast, which is about the culture industry in China. The first episode is about how to become a Wang Hong, how to become an internet famous. I'm famous, a、uh, famous person in China.、Uh, it's a,、uh, it's, it's check it out. It's a lot of fun. You'll love it. Uh, on the recommendations, Jeremy, to buy Jane、uh, some time. Why don't you go talk first? Talk a little bit. Okay. Blah blah blah. She's got one. Okay. I'd like to recommend a, a science, what we used to call science fiction, but I believe I'm now supposed to call speculative fiction.、Uh, a book by Kim Stanley Robinson. Ooh, I love called, him. Called、uh, Red Moon. And even if you don't like science fiction, if if you're interested in China, the the basically I'll give you the setup for it is.、Um, It's、uh, I can't remember how many years from now. Xi Jinping made a huge success of his nearly lifetime tenure. China is big and powerful. China spent a lot more on、uh, the moon than the United States, so it is the biggest.、Uh, it has the the biggest presence on the moon out of any other countries, and the drama takes place between the Earth and the moon, and in America and in China. In China, princelings are plotting a revolution,、um, and it's it's a lot of fun. And you know, I'm always hesitant to read books with China stuff written by non-China specialists because of how frequently they get the most 
you know, the dumbest things wrong. But he, he's d- done a pretty good job of actually giving a sense of contemporary China um, and of, uh, uh, you know, suggesting um, a way of thinking about the future. I think that's interesting for wow. China watchers. That sounds great. I, I'm going to, I mean, that's my next book then. I mean, this is a read. It's an easy read as well. A lot easier podcast, than most but, of the books yeah. you, you, uh, you know, it's... Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's okay, you're up, Jenny. What do you have? Okay, I'm actually torn between a book and a podcast. You can do both. Can do both. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay, so let's go with the book first. I would recommend uh, Wang Lixiong. Uh, yeah. He's uh, Wozer's is uh, well, husband, uh, right? Da, huh? Yeah. The husband of Wozer, right? Yes, right, that's right, right. right. Yeah, Wang Lixiong, who is the uh, author of many books, and including the the one on Tibet that I loved uh, tw- twenty years ago. But I'm, what I'm recommending is his latest uh, novel. That's actually a political science fiction. You could cast in that category because it's it's a novel or a novella, maybe uh, a short novel about um, casting the future of a China where the Big Brother has rained all and it actually is a world of both you know uh the big bro- the police state and the high tech police state um where you know um uh through like putting a something like a chip on everybody's shoe everybody's uh every moment everywhere is uh sur- you know, under surveillance. Oh, so he just uh, wrote about Xinjiang again. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote about Tibet, now he's writing about Xinjiang. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This book, I, I think this came out, this novel maybe came out two years ago. Uh, and But then, you know, something goes wrong in this massively high-tech, you know, state uh, where in the, the, the reason that the, the novel is called Da Dian, Great Ceremonies, um, this is when it happened during one of these highly, you know, choreographed, important state ceremony period, assassination took place using the most, you know, unexpected cutting edge technology by one of these nerdy, you know, designers, uh, you know, geeks, uh, who because of some kind of um, mishap for his own interests, Wanted to got involved in this assassination of the head of the state. Oh my gosh! And actually, so kind I'm of guessing got this away wasn't published in China. Then it was published in Taiwan. Oh, I think. of course, of and course. Hong Kong, or oh, maybe Hong Kong. But I read it online, oh, and okay. highly re- it's very well uh, written, written. Oh, and, and a good read. Oh, great! What's it called? There's Dadian. a love story in it. Uh, yeah, and there's uh, uh, yes, there's a Dadian. There's uh, for 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 geeks. There's a lot of you know technology, stuff, yeah. and then there's a sex machine. So it could be almost oh, part of I'm it is sold. like a porn a sex machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a high tech sex machine. Oh yeah, yeah. So there's a you know like Jeremy's these, a high tech uh, sex machine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's one recommendation. I want that in my next introduction. <laughs> Okay. The other is a podcast. I thought this is maybe the time to to review some of that uh, Roman history, ah, which is a yeah. time of uh, passion and intrigue and strongman, right? And this is a, a, a podcast series uh, by, I hope I don't get his name wrong, Mike Duncan, I think. Mm-hmm, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's very easily found on YouTube. Um, it's like 30... Nine episodes, uh, two hour each. Oh my so God. it's very good to listen. Lots of stories, 
Lots of good storytelling. And does it cover um, the entire history of Rome or just the, the, the entire? The no, no, the, the history of Rome. Oh, wow. So, oh, wow. you know. Terrific. Yeah. So, I've always loved these, these deep dive history podcasts. And yeah, they're lots of fun. I've just got a too long of a podcast listening list these days. And I have to produce seven of them every week. So it's kind of a pain <laughs> or more. But great so, recommendations. Two excellent recommendations. Uh, mine is going to be totally frivolous compared to that. And it's for a band that when you guys are in Beijing, you should definitely make an effort to see. They're called the Spice Cabinet. And they're fronted by a Chinese-American guy who shares a hometown with me. He's from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And he, uh, his name is Terrence Xie. Uh, he graduated in jazz trombone performance from Oberlin, which is a very well-known uh, of course, conservatory. So he's a fantastically gifted mu- musician, tremendously good arranger. The music they play is this, you know, horn-filled, joyous kind of funk pop with lots of jazz in it. These are they're consummate musicians. They're all just phenomenally good music. I mean, the level of musicianship among the the Beijing bands, except for you know the the shitty ones that, that pretend to be musicians and call themselves experimental or whatever, uh, the level of musicianship's uh, is just phenomenal and these guys uh, blew me away I, I listened to a bunch of their stuff so make sure to go see them music that will make you move there's just no question you can't sit still during stuff like this it's absolutely joyous so with that I want to thank you once again it's a, so it's such a pleasure to have you back and let's have you back again soon not wait so long this next time. yeah not in another era because yeah. <laughs> the last time was it was a different yeah, era different that's era, true yeah. a very okay. very different thank era thank you well, yeah, well, I, I don't think any of us will be alive by the time this era ends I'm afraid <laughs> no, on that note I, that's really high note that, is that a depressing way to end the podcast well, well people ask me what, about the you know the, the Mike Pence you know speech which is Ugh. The, the, yeah. the, the, the all out call right to right. a cold war and I, my response would be let's make some frozen daiquiris and toast to the new cold war <laughs> <laughs> at, at, you know my response is fuck that guy without alcohol <laughs> anyway thank you for all oh, thank you thanks, Jeremy pleasure as always and thank you all for coming out on Valentine's Day to hang out with us yeah thank you Stick around and ask some questions, but I'm going to do the outro first. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Special thanks this week to the good people at Fordham Law who made this terrific space available to us. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the other podcasts that we've got, the Tyson Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, Ta for Ta, and the brand new Middle Earth Podcast. More great shows coming soon, believe it or not. I really I got more shows for you guys in store. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Yeah, it was